God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. And what we're going to look at today is purposed for himself. And in Titus 2, verse 14, we read, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works, who gave himself for us. It is Christ who gave his life in order that those chosen by God through Christ might be redeemed from all iniquity. Before there can be either grace or mercy, there must be justice. So that by Jesus giving his life for sin, God's justice had been met and mercy for sin could follow. This is why all true salvation is the work of God's Son and could never be the work of those he died for. If sin is to be removed, then God must do it because man cannot. Those also whom God sent Jesus to save are those purposed by God to be his own. They were not redeemed so that they might be independent of the Lord Jesus, but rather that they might be accounted as belonging to him. This is why there is no true Christian who does not have relationship with Jesus Christ. For salvation itself teaches us that not unless men are willing to become the possession of Christ, can they be saved by him. Ultimately also, those whom Christ purifies from sin are those purposed for himself. See, Jesus saves no sinner who was not meant to be his own. Hence, no man shall ascend to heaven, absent then being the possession of Christ. Every saved man is purposed to be Christ's, and if he is not, there can be no salvation given him. Heaven, therefore, is only for those who are Christ's, and it is not purposed for any man who is not. Ellicott on this verse. And purify unto himself a peculiar people. A peculiar people is taken from the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, where the word occurs several times. The idea is also purely an Old Testament one. Just as Jehovah wished to establish a people which should belong to him, peculiarly his, his very own, submitting to his laws, in contrast to the rest of mankind, lawless idolaters, so Jesus would set apart and purify for himself a people which for his sake should devote itself to God, in contrast to the rest of humanity sunk in selfish sins, end quote. Redeem us from all iniquity. Redeem from all iniquity means all that could prevent a man from entrance into heaven and could impede eternal fellowship with God. Jesus is a full redeemer for his people and not a partial sacrifice for sin. This is why there are none who are Christ's that need any cleansing from sin beyond Jesus offering himself for it. For them, Jesus makes them complete, Colossians 2.10. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Because of Christ's personal and perfect sacrifice for sin, those who have put their trust in him have been made righteous by God. Since faith in the Son of God is what opens the door for a man to be made righteous by God. Thus we can see that through faith in the Son of God, believers have been made to stand 
holy and without blame before the Lord. In Ephesians 1, 4, we read, According as he, God, hath chosen us, we his people, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. It was for this purpose that God sent Jesus to the earth, so that in him a people might be able to stand without blemish before a righteous and holy God. Ultimately also, it is only if a man is to be found in Christ that he can be viewed as being found sinless in God's sight. Ellicott on Ephesians 1.4 The word without blame or unblameable is properly without blemish. And the word unreprovable more nearly corresponds to our idea of one unblameable, one against whom no charge can be brought, end quote. This is what redemption means. In truth, a man is either completely redeemed by the Son of God, or he is not. All means all, and if it did not, then God's word would clarify what other sins needed to be dealt with. So great then is Christ's work in giving himself for sin that his people have been perfected forever. And in Hebrews 10, 14, we read, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Barnes on Hebrews 10, 14, For by one offering, by offering himself once on the cross, the Jewish priest offered his sacrifices often, and still they did not avail to put away sin. The Savior made one sacrifice, and it was sufficient for the sins of the world. Continuing in the commentary, He hath perfected forever. He hath laid the foundation of the eternal perfection. The offering is of such a character that it secures their final freedom from sin and will make them forever holy. The offerings made under the Jewish law were so defective that there was a necessity for repeating them every day. The offering made by the Savior was so perfect that it needed not to be repeated and that it secured the complete and final salvation of those who availed themselves of it. End quote. It is worthy of note that nowhere does Satan bring more false accusation of sin than against those whom Christ has eternally justified. Seeking to impugn Christ's work, Satan consistently will bring accusations against those saved by him. The most holy, then, will be accused by the world, with Satan leading the charge as the great accuser of the brethren, as the greatest sinners. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, therefore sinners will accuse the righteous of being what they themselves really are. Returning to the great points of Titus 2.14, let us remember this. First, those whom Christ died for are by his sacrifice for sin redeemed from all iniquity. By Christ offering himself for sin, the penalty for sin has been administered. Divine justice met, therefore grace for sin could follow. Secondly, the reason that Christ cleansed his people is so that he might purify unto himself a holy people, purposed also for his own divine service. Thirdly, what proves that a man is Christ's? 
and has been freed from sin, is that instead of serving sin, he will devote himself to living a life of pursuing good works. Ultimately, Christ's people will carry the same zeal of doing good as their Savior. The Greek word zelotes in Titus 2.14 is defined by Strong's Concordance as one who is eagerly devoted to a person or a thing, a zealot. Helps Word Study's definition is a person with zealous enthusiasm who boils over with passion. It is this definition that describes how those saved by Christ will live. Ellicott on this verse, zealous of good works. The man who hopes to see the epiphany of the Lord Jesus and love and glory will struggle zealously with hand and brain to live his life in such a manner that he may meet his Lord when he comes in glory with joy. It was a people composed of such zealots, of goodness, of men longing for his sake to do their utmost for his cause, that our great God and Savior wished to purify unto himself, end quote. It is easy to distinguish those whom Christ sanctified and made holy for himself in that they will manifest a great zeal to live for the one who died for them. They are not the frozen chosen, but rather will manifest an enthusiastic desire that the gospel might advance and that others also might be saved by God. For the saved also, obeying Christ's words will not be thought to be too hard. We say this simply because when impostors are exposed to the strong and emphatic words of the Savior, they will deem his words as beyond reasonable. So that where those who merely profess Christ's name will struggle with obeying Christ's commandments, his true people will not. It is thus by Christ's words that there is the winnowing of true believers and those who only claim faith. For nothing will separate quicker those who have been saved by God than when they receive his son's words, even as the majority of men in the world will not. We can observe this truth in Christ's earthly ministry, where when Jesus' words became too sharp, those who only held a casual interest in him departed. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, we read, From that time, many of his disciples, many of Jesus' disciples went back and walked no more with him. By this we can see that Jesus' words will as equally draw one man to Christ as they will drive another man away from him. Christ's words are therefore exceedingly sharp, and they will separate whether or not men are really called to God or not. Benson on this verse in John 6.66, From that time, many of his disciples went back. This discourse of our Lord was, in all its different branches, so offensive to many who till now had followed him and professed to be his disciples that from this time they ceased to attend on or to hear him so that he now began to purge his floor. The proud and the careless were driven away and those only remained who were meat for the master's use, end quote. Ultimately, how men respond to the words of the Son of God will reveal if they were purposed by God 
to be those whom Christ died for. There is also a very significant reason why not everyone will believe upon Jesus Christ. It is because unless the Father draws someone to the Son, then no real faith in Him can be possessed. And in John chapter 6, verse 65 now, And He said, this is Christ speaking, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my Father. See, no man can come to the Son without first being given permission by the Father. This is why neither human will, nor biblical academic study, nor religious observance by themselves can save men, simply because it is not human choice, but divine choice that saves men. It is God who chooses those purposed for His Son, and not men who by themselves can determine their heavenly destiny. Ellicott on this verse, No man can come unto me. Unless the fields had been prepared, it was in vain to sow the seed. No effort on the sower's part could make them receptive. The fact that they believed not declared that their hearts were not prepared, but did not affect the goodness of the seed. This defection did not surprise him. He had already used words which anticipated it, end quote. John chapter 6, verse 37 now. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. As Jesus reveals here, all who have been given to himself by the Father shall come at his invitation. Just as God chose Israel to be his own, so now divine choice repeated itself by the Lord Jesus choosing those who should be his. And in John fifteen sixteen we read, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Divine election and even the thought of it will cause great consternation in sinners who themselves feel that salvation should only be regulated by human choice. Yet heaven is God's possession and not man's. And as such, the Lord chooses whom he wills to believe by giving them both sight of Christ as well as confidence in his person. Hence, for a man to be saved by Christ, first he must be given to Christ by God. Thus, it is by God's choice and not man's that Christ's heavenly body is filled. Barnes on this verse, John chapter 6, verse 37, God enables those who do believe to do it. He draws them to him by his word and spirit. He opens their hearts to understand the scriptures and grants to them repentance. The Father giveth me. We're still in the commentary. We here learn that those who come to Christ and, are, and will be saved are given to him by God, end quote. Divine faith is also not something that any fleshly man can produce on his own simply because it is the Spirit's influence in a person's heart that ultimately produces faith in it. Thus, faith is defined in Scripture as a gift from God, produced through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
In truth, it is the Spirit's work that draws people to the Son of God and both inspires and enables them to believe in Him. So that whenever you see faith in action, then you can be assured that it is the Spirit's work which is producing such an effect in a person's soul. Verse 69 now of John 6. And this is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, again Christ speaking, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Jesus also gives believers the assurance that those given to him by the Father, he will not cast out. Hence, Jesus cannot and will not turn away those whom God has purposed his death on the cross should save. It is certain then that if God is drawing a man to believe upon his son, then Jesus will both receive and save the man according to God's will. It is also the Father's will that each and every person purposed for heaven shall gain it. And this will be proven because Jesus will not lose even one. Such a caretaker is Jesus of those purposed for himself, that not one that God has given to him shall be lost. Once then a man's soul is put in care of the Son of God, then he shall keep, he, Jesus, shall keep and preserve this life until the end of time. John ten twenty eight, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Such power then does Jesus have to preserve one of his own, that nothing, either in heaven or earth, shall be able to dislodge them from his hand. Barnes on 10, 28, John 10, 28. Shall any. The word any refers to any power that might attempt it. It will apply either to men or to devils. It is an affirmation that no man, however eloquent in error, or persuasive in infidelity, or cunning in argument, or mighty in rank, and that no devil with all his malice, power, cunning, or allurements shall be able to pluck them from his hand. Pluck them, in the original, to rob, to seize and bear away as a robber does his prey. Jesus holds them so secure and so certainly that no foe can surprise him as a robber does or overcome him by force. My hand, the hand is that by which we hold or secure an object. It means that Jesus has them safely in his own care and keeping, end quote. Lastly, for those whom Jesus saves, it should not be thought that it is only Christ's death that saves. For Jesus said, even while still alive, and before the crucifixion, and before the cross, that he had finished the work which God had given him to accomplish. And in John 17, 4, we read, again, Christ's words, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. No doubt the Lord intended that the cross should finish his redeeming work. But it should not be wrongly concluded that only Christ's death saves a man, since it is the complete ministry of the Son of God, both Christ's life and his death that saves the sinner. Barnes on this verse. I have finished the work. When he says, I have finished, he probably means to include also his death. All the preparations for that death were made. He had preached to the Jews. 
He had given them full proof that he was the Messiah. He had collected his disciples. He had taught them the nature of his religion. He had given them his parting counsel. And there was nothing remaining to be done but to return to God. We see here that Jesus was careful that his great and important work should be done before his dying hour. He did not postpone it to be performed just as he was leaving the world. So completely had he done his work that even before his death, he could say, I have finished the work. How happy would it be if men would imitate his example and not leave their great work of life to be done on a dying bed? Christians should have their work accomplished when that hour approaches, have nothing to do but to die and to return to their Father in heaven, end quote. Every saved person need not to rely merely on just the cross, but can also rely on the entire life of the Son of God. This truth is so much stronger than men thinking that only one act of Jesus is what saves them, when in fact is the entirety of the Lord Jesus coming to the earth, which secures the salvation of his people, so that by both Christ's life and death are men redeemed from sin and given right to heaven. Amen.